0: Well, good morning.
1: Good, morning. good morning. I give honor to our great and worthy God, who's deserving of all praise. I magnify Him, Father, Son, and Spirit. I'm glad for the privilege to be with you and God's goodness to us in uh, giving us opportunity to be back. I'm always am thankful for the uh, privilege we have to be here at Spring Lake. And uh, I'm glad, particularly because of uh, heritage I've had, and I thank God for the memory of brother frank mcguire and of course uh, brother lenny rogers who was here afterwards i know there's been a a wealth of of good ministry over the years here and we're thankful for you who are here this morning and for our brother paul who's laboring as well as kevin and also our brother gary who's worked in uh, teaching sunday school i'm i'm thankful for privilege of a new fellowship i have been traveling a good bit uh Brother Kevin mentioned uh, Georgia, and we were there uh, starting the week of Father's Day, and then from there down to Texas, the Dallas area, Mesquite, and then uh, back in for the weekend briefly, and then up to Pennsylvania to Worthington, and then back home. And uh, Terry's had me about a week now. I hope she's been happy with that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Y'all pray for her and pray for me there, you know, because she sometimes says she feels like a military wife. She, I'm gone and then I'm back. I'm gone and then I'm back, you know. Except they don't send me off a year, though. You know. I hope she's not praying for that. <laughs> we are glad to be with you, brothers and sisters. Good to good to see each of you. I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John this morning. I, I'd like for us in the Lord's will today to spend some time in the Gospel of John this morning in the Sunday school hour and then at the 11 o'clock hour and 5 o'clock we want to think a little bit about what our God has given to us there and I particularly want to direct your attention in this hour to John 21, the last chapter of the Gospel of John and we want to say a few things though by way of just introduction and overview about the Gospel before we look particularly at chapter 21, and as we look at it, let me just read that chapter in your hearing. Again, the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to John. And We read there in verse 1, After these things Jesus showed himself alive to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise, wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Galilee, and excuse me, of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus.' Then Jesus saith unto them, "'Children, have ye any meat?' They answered him, "'No.' And he said unto them, "'Cast the net on the right side of the ship, "'and ye shall find.' They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, "'It is the Lord.' Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea." And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon in bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty and three. For all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And one, mas- none of the disciples, excuse me, durst ask him, Who art thou? knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples, after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, Follow me. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that 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 disciple should not die. Yet Jesus said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. We trust our God will add His blessing to this portion of His Word this morning. May we just again bow before Him. Father, we look to You in the name of Thy worthy Son, of whom we read here, in these blessed words that You gave to John by inspiration of Your Spirit. Bless now Your Word, Father, and honor Your Son in our lives. Glorify Him, we pray, throughout the world this day, among Your churches and Your family on earth. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You, Father, for the mercy You show to us in Your Son. We pray that mercy be magnified as we look at His dealings here after the resurrection with His disciples. Grant us, Lord, Your blessing. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, as we look at these words, John 21, particularly we want to think about the theme of restoration. Because I believe we see that here in these words as we find particularly a focus on Peter that marks this chapter. But before we do, I'd like to just give a little bit of an overview on the gospel according to John. Uh, There are those who would divide in different ways. But one of those ways that I had appreciated in which it's been divided overall is in terms of Two books, one gospel really. Not that they're actually two books, but but in terms of what some would call the book of signs, and then the book of glory. That book of signs would be the opening part of John's gospel, chapters one through twelve. Twelve is kind of a transition chapter, though, as it moves into the book of glory. But the book of signs is uh, the portion in which John records. Those miracles that Jesus did, and there are many, as we read even at the end of the gospel here, there are many miracles He did, but particularly John chooses specific ones because he calls them signs. The Greek word is or uh, the plural, Simeon in, in uh, the singular. He uses that word to speak of these miracles that Jesus did, And in speaking of them as signs, I believe John is importing that, and the Spirit of God as well, that these miracles are signs in that they have a significance beyond themselves. They have a significance, first of all, in that they point to who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. One miracle particularly speaks of that in John 9. You remember the pool of Siloam and the blind man. And, and the Lord Jesus takes spittle and makes mud, puts it in the man's eyes, and then tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He does that and he's sighted now. The man who was blind now has his sight but there's a catch, it's the Sabbath day. John 5, the same thing about the man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda. It was a Sabbath, and the Jews wanted to find fault with him for doing a miracle on the Sabbath. But as he did that sign of healing the blind man you remember there was a flap uh, with the Pharisees. They wanted to come up and say, this man can't be of God because he did this on the Sabbath day. And of course, the Lord Jesus had addressed that most of his public ministry. Is it right to do good on the Sabbath day? And uh, what is it okay to heal? And of course, the answer that he would give and that the God himself would give is yes. And uh, as that argument takes place among the Pharisees, especially with the blind man. You remember they keep asking him, how did he open your eyes? And as he he answers them, he said, would you be his disciples? And they take great offense at that. We're we're Moses' disciples. You may be one of his disciples. We know Moses could sit by God but as for this man and at that point, the blind man says, herein is a marvelous thing. A man has opened the eyes of the blind, a miracle that hasn't been done since the world began, and you can't recognize this as of God. Now that man was speaking more truth, I think, than he realized. Because in Isaiah chapter 35, when God had spoken of that day when He Himself would come to save His people, He said this would happen. Then shall the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like an heart, and then shall the tongue of the dumb or the mute sing. And those miracles, they took place like gangbusters, if you will, when the Lord Jesus appeared. The blind seeing, the deaf hearing, the, 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 the dumb, the mute speaking, and the, the lame man leaping. And there were special miracles that were reserved for Messiah. Elijah and Elisha raised the dead, but we never read of deaf ears being opened or blind eyes being opened by them. Why? Because those special miracles reserved when God came to save His people. And when the Lord Jesus appeared, God manifest in the flesh, the Word who was God become flesh, those miracles were done. And, and that blind man saw more truth than the Pharisees who handled truth. Because their eyes were blinded. And of course that's how that John 9 ends. Christ said, For judgment I've come into the world that they which see should be made blind and that those which are blind should be made to see. And I'm glad today that I'm a blind man whose eyes have been opened by sovereign grace. You see, that's the sign beyond the... That's the significance, if you will, beyond the sign. It points to who Jesus is, but also it becomes, as it were, a spiritual parable. And that's how our Lord ends John 9, is speaking along those lines of spiritual blindness and a spiritual sight. The Pharisees thought they had sight, but they were woefully mistaken. They couldn't even recognize the Messiah God had sent to Israel. The blind man was also blind spiritually, but he got sight because he saw the Son of God, not only physically, but spiritually. Because of that, the man came to know what it is to have genuine vision. To have the vision that recognizes who the Lord Jesus is. And that is the gift of God's grace. Apart from grace, that will never be experienced. If God in His sovereignty is not pleased to give me sight and I rely on my nature, my works, it won't happen. That's why the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus in John's Gospel chapter 3, and I love the way the King James puts it, because the King James, as we have it, distinguishes between you singular and you plural. Thee, or thou and thee, and ye and you. And here's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye... Must be born again. You see, Nicodemus is really a representative of the Pharisees, a representative of the teachers of Israel. And the Lord Jesus tells him, Marvel not that I say unto thee, you singular, ye, you plural, must be born again. All of you religious folk, your pedigree in religion by nature is not going to save you nor help you. Because salvation is the gift of God's grace, and in that grace, He gives a new birth to sinners. In that grace, He gives sight to sinners who are blind. Now, those signs were done by Jesus, and I said, chapter 12 is kind of a transition chapter. If you would notice what John says, we could look at some other words about the sign. The first miracle that's called, it's called a miracle, but in, in the Greek it is the word Simeon, which means sign, Simeon, and 2.11, where it talks about the wedding at the Feast of Galilee, uh, the excuse me, the wedding of Cana of Galilee, and, and then uh, it mentions as well in John 2 that many other signs Jesus did when he was in Jerusalem. And that's one reason that Nicodemus came to him. Remember he said, no man can do the miracles thou doest except God be with him. And yet John chooses some specific ones. The next one John reports is John chapter 4, the healing of the uh, uh, nobleman's son. is our Lord's coming back into Galilee. And now uh, that word is used, the miracle against a miracle, again, Simeon, that, uh, in John 4:54. But the summary of Jesus miracles that John gives in that portion of John we could call the book of signs is in chapter 12. And uh, in the words there, verse 18 of John chapter 12, we see reference to a miracle that Lord willing will look at next hour, John 11, the miracle of the raising of Lazarus, his resurrection. But as John records that and speaks about the desire of the Jews to come to see Jesus when he was at Bethany in the earlier part of John 12, this is part of the reason why. And He's going into triumphal entry now after that meal at Bethany. And uh, people are gathered. We know how they sang Hosanna from the other Gospels. And here's one reason why people wanted to see him. Verse 18 of John 12. For this cause the people also met him. For that they heard that he had done this miracle. That's the raising of Lazarus. And the word again is Simeon's sign. There was a significance to that. The Lord will in the next hour we'll look at it. And yet as they welcome him into Jerusalem at this Passover, and as they say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, save now thou that dwellest in the highest. As they say that, sadly, things are going to shift during this week. And as Matthew Henry put it, Today Hosanna, tomorrow crucified. And by the end of the week, the crowd is going to say, And of course, it was a crowd that was selectively picked out by the chief priest. The crowd's going to say, away with this man, give us Barabbas. And then John will point this out in chapter 12, the unbelief of Israel. If you would drop down with me to the words there of of, uh, John 12, verse uh, 37, please. But though he had done so many miracles, and this is again that word sign, Simeon, they were miracles, but they also, as miracles, had the significance to them beyond the miracles. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him, that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Those are words of Isaiah 53 1. Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. That's from Isaiah chapter 6, the words of verse 10. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. That was the vision in chapter 6 of Isaiah when Isaiah was called to the prophetic ministry by God, said, Hear him I send me, remember. He, he, he realized his sinfulness woe is me. I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And as that happened, one of the seraphim went and with tongs took a coal from the altar, touched his lips, and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, thine iniquity is purged, thy sins taken away. And Isaiah was now equipped, and he heard the voice of the Lord God saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. And then God told him the kind of ministry he was going to have. Isaiah, they're not going to listen to you. Now, I don't know about... When the Lord saved me and called me to preach, the Lord didn't tell me that, you know, when I... You know that almost seems discouraging. you're starting out the ministry. By the way, son, they're not going to listen to you. They're not going to hear you. But you see, the thing was, this was a hallmark of Israel. Stephen in his ministry in Acts chapter seven, Stephen makes it clear that Israel has had a knack for failing to recognize those God sent to them, whether it was Joseph or Moses or whether it was the prophets and that's going to continue for Israel as we understand it until that day when one day the spirit of grace and supplication will be poured out on them Zechariah 12 10 and they'll look on him whom they pierced and they'll mourn for him and they'll be in bitterness over him but what is God showing by that that even privilege the privilege of having his word is not enough for a depraved heart You see, the Pharisees, they had the Word. They knew it meticulously. But even the Word of God is not enough. Why? Not because of any defect in this book. Because of the defect of the human heart. The depravity of sin is so great that left to ourselves, I can have God's complete revelation and I'll reject truth if He doesn't work inwardly and powerfully in my soul in sovereign grace. That's a reality. And we see it even in mainline denominations that apostatized, don't we? They started out with the Word of God. And as they did, they steadily got away. And over time, truth was not enough. And they rejected truth. And at this point... You, you, you can read about what's happening in their conventions, and their assemblies, and it's craziness because they're outright rejecting the Word of God, and yet, and yet talking about God, talking about love and about justice and about oh, you know, all these things that God's Word speaks to. But they're so far from Scripture. You can you, you, you wonder how did they get there? Well, they got there because at some point God gave them over. And that's what Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah six, and so that's why the sides are rejected. But even in that, God was at work because in Israel's rejecting of his, of her Messiah, what happened? Salvation comes to the world. And John twelve features that as these Greeks come to come to. Uh, Philip, whose name is very Greek, Philippus. That was the father of Alexander the Great of Macedon, remember. Philip of Macedon. His name is Greek and he goes and when they say, Sir, we sir, we would see Jesus. Greeks come into the feast of Passover. Andrew, the next disciple with a very Greek name. Andreas. Philip gets Andreas and they go and talk to Jesus and tell him, there's some Greeks who want to see you. And the Lord Jesus starts to speak strange. He says, except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it brings forth much fruit. And he summarizes what he says by saying in John 12, 32, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. In other words, basically it's as though he's saying, you guys want me to talk to these Greeks, but you don't realize there's something that's going to be the pivot that becomes the hinge on which the gospel will go to the nations. And That is the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now that he has ascended, what does he say? Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. And as he has been lifted up, and that's a reference to his death, John 12, 33 makes clear, he spake this signifying how he would die. As that happens, what's happened? He's drawing all men to him. That is distributively among the nations. There are Italians coming. There are even folks from Burlington, Alamance County, how about that? Fayetteville, North Carolina. Oh, scuzzball slimy sinner named David Morris from Cumberland County, North Carolina. And God is drawing out from the nations his people and gathering them together ultimately into one as sheep who've been called by the good shepherd. Sheep who were lost. Sheep who were wandering from the fold, but he's called them. Now, as we move from that into John chapter 12 just a moment, Uh, Oh, and by the way, the book of glory is Christ being lifted up. Now, that lifted up has the idea of being exalted. But there's also a use of lifted up. And it's interesting in the dreams that Joseph interpreted in Genesis 39, you may recall, the, the baker and the butler are both told your head will be lifted up. The butler, remember... In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and he will restore you to your office. Well, the baker heard that interpretation and he told his dream about the birds pecking out of the third cake, the pie that was on top of his head. And Joseph said, In three days, your head will be lifted up. Pharaoh will take your head from you. Now, if you will, both of those are brought together in Christ. In his death, he was lifted up on the cross. And he told, remember Nicodemus, plainly that in John 3. And as Moses, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, that's the promise of what will happen for all who trust him as he is lifted up. The reference to his death. But in His being lifted up to die in fulfillment of the Father's plan and purpose, He is ultimately going to be lifted up in exaltation as well. And that becomes the time of His glory. And He speaks of that in John 12. Now's the time the Son of Man must be glorified. And as He's about to go to the cross in His prayer in John 17, He said, Father, glorify Thy Son as Thy Son also has glorified Thee that he may give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they may know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou sent. He's lifted up, and in his lifting up, death happens. And as he dies on the, on the cross, that death that you and I deserved, as he, as he dies, he cries out that victory cry from the cross, to "I it is finished. And that becomes victory because he's accomplished the work the Father's given him to do. And as such, the Father says, Son, now I'm going to glorify you as mediator. I'm going to glorify you in your role that you've occupied as the Son of Man, the mediator. And I'm going to give you the nations for your inheritance. And that, brothers and sisters, is the book of glory. And it ends with this episode in John 21 that we've read. And let's look at it a little because it shows us in some measure as the Lord Jesus speaks of John 10 about being the good shepherd. You remember a statement he makes about his sheep? He says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd does what? Calleth his sheep by name. He did that in John 20, remember? When on the morning of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene, who'd gone with the women, found out the tomb was empty, went back and reported to the disciples. John and Peter run, and they see, yes, it's empty. They go back, and Mary's left alone there to weep. And she sees a man she thinks to be the gardener. And he asks, woman, why weepest thou? And she says, if you've borne him hence, let me know where you've taken him, and I'll get his body. I don't know how she was going to get his body by herself. But as he talks with her, he says, I'll try to say it as southern as I can, Mary. (laughs) Put the emphasis on that A. Mary. And she hears her name, Mary. And the good shepherd who calls his sheep by name, she turns and says, Ramona, my master, my teacher. Throws herself at his feet, and he basically says, stop clinging to me. Don't need to hold on to me. I'm not gone yet. I'm going to be here 40 more days. Well, he calls another sheep by name in in John chapter 21, brothers and sisters. And that's the sheep who, it seems, wanted to go back to the old life. Let's look at it. But before you do, let me read Galatians 6.1 here. Because I think this verse is very instructive about what our Lord does in John chapter 21. Many of you quote these words in Galatians 6. But it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Here we read of what we are to do if we are in that group of those who would, uh, as spiritual, we trust, restore somebody who's overtaken in a fault. The word restore in the Greek Testament is katartizo. It's used by Galen, the Greek medical writer of setting a bone. Gary, I don't mean to bring that up as a harmful illustration for you because I know you've been there lately but but back in uh, let's see, June of 1990. Terry, give me the date because she remembers it. I broke this wrist I jumped off a horse that was bucking. I felt like the best thing I could do was like the old cartoon figure. Exit stage right, you know. And, so I, and when I did that wet uh, field, farming farm gland, it was hard as concrete. I reckon, And the impact was on this wrist and I shattered it. It looked like an accordion. Terry, when we left to ride that horse, said, don't break a leg, David. <laughs> well, I didn't. I listened to her. <laughs> but I did break a wrist, And they took me to the hospital and when the ER doctor saw it, he said, I can't do anything with this. You're going to have to have surgery. So they called in Dr. Van Giesen from the KDV clinic, their orthopedic clinic in York, Pennsylvania. And he knew that I was from North Carolina visiting, so he didn't want to do surgery, but he started out just by straightening that out. He put my fingertips in some mesh wire tips and then... My my hand was hanging. And then he straightened out my arm. And the rush of relief was so great from just straightening out those bones that for a while I didn't need anesthetic. But he did it firmly, but he also did it very carefully. He just didn't start wrenching it. That's the idea of the word catartibs here in it's medical use. To set a bone. You that are spiritual, restore such a one. And that's what our Lord is doing in John chapter 21. He is so carefully dealing with Peter. Firmly, but also delicately. And as he does that, let's just go back to chapter 21 and notice it, please. And if you would, notice how John kind of sandwiches this scene in verse 1 and in verse 14. It's a revelation of the Lord Jesus. Notice, after these things, verse 1, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise, wise showed he himself. And then notice verse 14 of chapter 21 of John. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. In other words, what we have here is a revelation of the Son of God. He is unveiling some more of himself and his resurrected glory to his disciples. And I believe that it's more than just showing himself in the sense of showing them physically that he's alive. He's manifesting Himself in His glory as the shepherd and Savior of His people. Showing us who He is in His dealings with us. Because sometimes, brothers and sisters, even though we're sheep who've been called by the Good Shepherd, into His fellowship, we wander. And thank God He deals with us graciously in restoration. And He shows Himself to be a faithful shepherd. And a great Savior. And uh, you know the reality is great sinners need a great Savior. And even though I'm a saved sinner, I'm still a sinner. And I still need a great Savior. That's what the hymn writer said. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior. I'm glad we've got one. And the Lord Jesus shows Himself. In this chapter, to be such. As we move on to the end the of chapter, notice verses 2 and 3. I would have what I would give you a return here. That is a return to the old life in measure. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathaniel of Canaan, Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. There's the power of influence. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Now I don't believe there's anything wrong with fishing. I haven't done a lot of it, but when I've done it, I've enjoyed it. Especially when you get some good catfish and bluegill. We did that down in North Florida when I was preaching a meeting years ago. And it, it, brother we were with the pastor, he had a dock with the water there that he cleaned the fish on, had the grease already red hot, I'm telling you, and already did some cheese grits and slaw for us. We were ready to eat. He threw that. He cleaned that fish and he threw it, threw it in that fire and we had a feast. Well, Simon, though I believe when he said, I go fishing, he imports more than just the fact that he was going to go wet a line or drop a net. I believe in effect, Simon is in effect thinking it's over for him as a disciple. Now, again, that's, that's not something it says directly, but I believe that's the thought. And I believe we see it in our Lord's words in the way that I understand them. Now, you might disagree with me on that, but I think as we look at it, there's, that will be borne out in measure. Mm-hmm. But as he says, I go efficient in the power of influence, these others go with them. They have an unsuccessful night of fishing. And and in what follows in the chapter from verses four and onward are a lot of reminders for Simon Peter. Some things that are going to bring to remembrance dealings of the Lord with him. And it starts with the fact that they've had an unsuccessful night fishing. And as they have, they the they hear a voice on the shore that says, cast the net on the right side. Anybody remember that? Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching at the Sea of Galilee. The crowd's so thick, and I've seen pictures of the Sea of Galilee. There's a a fall to the land as you go down to the water. And, And it's like a natural amphitheater. And our Lord, as the crowd's there, He gets on board the ship and makes that the pulpit. And He teaches from it. And while He's teaching from it, when the sermon's over, instead of saying, take me back to land, He tells the owner of the ship, a man named Simon, drop your, drop your net for a draft of fishes. Lord, we've taught all night. But nevertheless, at Thy Word. In Luke chapter 5, he drops his net and he pulls up a catch so great that the net breaks. He falls at the feet of Jesus and Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. And the Lord says, fear not, from henceforth you will catch men. And what's happening in John 21? Deja vu already, all over again, as Yogi Berra said. Uh, the very miracle at which Simon had been called to be a disciple is replicated as a peg, a reminder. Simon, I've called you to something else now. You have a different responsibility now. You're going to catch men alive. And I've prepared and I've poured myself into you these three years for a reason. And it's not that you could go back to the old life. And so... There's that peg. But, but then something else that is another reminder, not just a miracle that replicates what happened in Luke 5 when Simon Peter was called, but also when they get to the land, Jesus already has breakfast ready. He doesn't need their fish. He's already got some fish. And, and as they come, notice verse 9. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. There's a fire of coals. The Greek word is anthrakia. And we get, you know, we've got bituminous coal up in West Virginia, but they have anthracite coal up in Pennsylvania. It's a lot harder. I was in Schuylkill County last week preaching. It's anthracite coal country. When Mr. Trump was running for re-election, they put signs all over there and other places in Pennsylvania. Trump digs coal. <laughs> but in Schuylkill County, that, that's coal country. There was, a, there was a problem with the coal miners. They got a statue of Henry Clay, the great compromiser. Uh, he, he, he resolved issues for them in the early days of the coal industry up there. Anthracite, that's the word. Anthracia comes from that. It's a word that is used twice in the New Testament only. It's used both times by John. You know with other time when that fire of coals is seen? It's in John 18.18. Let me read it to you. John 18.18 And the servants and officers stood there where? Outside the home of the high priest. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals for it was cold. And they warmed themselves and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. What was that fire the occasion of? Someone saying you're one of them aren't you? Peter said, I don't know the man. Mm-hmm. And now he's by another fire of coals in the morning. By the Sea of Galilee. And it's another reminder. Fire of coals. Peter's reminded of something that just a matter of days or weeks had taken place when he denied the Lord. A little servant girl said, you're one of his, aren't you? No, I don't know. Well, you were there. He saw you, the servant, said... No, I don't know him. Finally, with oaths, he says, I tell you, I don't know the man. The Lord Jesus is recreating a scene that is going to bring Simon Peter back. Well, they have their meal, and after they've eaten, verse 15 says, when they had died, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, he uses not his name that, his new name that Jesus had given, he uses the old name, Simon, son of Jonas, same, same name he had used in Matthew 16 when he said, and he asked, Whom do you say that I am? Whom do men say I am? I am the Son of Man. Well, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. Well, whom do you say? And Peter answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjonas, son of John, for flesh and blood, hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And now, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now how many times will he ask him? Three times. And on the third time, what happens? Peter is grieved because he asked him the third time. Why is that? I believe again, another reminder. How many times did Peter denied? it? Three, Jesus said, you'll deny me three times. Peter's being taken back. And I believe the Lord Jesus, as He asked, lovest thou me more than these? The the question has been raised, to to what do the these refer to? To to what do they make reference? Well, some would say, do you love me more than the other disciples? I don't think that's the idea. I believe as they're eating those fish, Jesus looked at those fish bones and He says, do you love me more than these? As Simon is, as it were, making his return to his old profession. Now, you don't have to agree with that. I I welcome you to have, you know, whatever view you favor. But it seems to me it's consistent with him saying, I go efficient. And the fact that, in effect, he's forgetting the life to which he has been called and the responsibility to which he's been called by the Lord Jesus. Now, some have made note of the fact that when the Lord Jesus says, Lovest thou me, he uses the Greek word agapao, our word agape in the noun form, He uses that word. It's used of a calculating love, a love that is thought out. Peter answers instead, Lord, I phileo you. Now, there are those who have pointed out that agape is used of God's love. And I know that's right. And and, and that somehow they're saying Peter is dropping down to a lower love. That may be, but that's not the way I understand it. I understand here the idea of phileo as being the love of friendship that is marked not only by calculating character, but by an emotional affection. And, and I believe he's saying, Lord Jesus, I have really, my heart is stirred for you. My, my heart's rekindled for you. And this is not necessarily in the passage, but in John, Song of Solomon, chapter 5, when the Shunammite hears her beloved knocking. Open to me, my beloved. My, my locks are wet with dew. And she says, I put off my coat. How shall I put it on? I've washed my feet. How shall I dirty them, you know? And then she comes to her senses and opens the door and he's gone. She says, my heart was stirred with love for him. And I believe that's what Peter's feeling, rekindling in him. And Lord, I, I don't just love you with a thought out love. Lord, I, I love you with the love. is marked by the affection and emotion of friendship and of the fellowship we've had. And I believe the Lord Jesus is stirring the strings. He's setting the bone, if you will, of a man who said, I never knew you. And as he does that, he gives Peter the charge. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Peter responds, he saith to him, feed my sheep. First of all, feed my lambs, verse 15. Then he asked again the second time. Again, he asked with the word agapao, and Peter responds with phileo. Thou knowest that I love thee, and he says, feed my sheep. Verse 17 gives us the final one. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, lovest thou me? And here the word is phileo which Peter is using. That's one reason why I don't believe that it has the significance of a lesser love because here Christ uses it. And Peter answers, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus again says to him, feed my sheep. In other words, here, as it were, Peter's confession is fuller because he acknowledges Christ's person. Lord, you know you are the Word who was God, now come into flesh. And Lord, You know all things. I may not know my heart, but You know my heart. And You know that You have loved me and because You love me first, I love You. You know all things. And again, the Lord Jesus says, Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, remember your calling now. Peter, I've called you. I don't mind you having a fish meal. But go to Captain D's. I don't mind you having a fish meal, but go to Long John Silver's because I'm calling you to the responsibility of feeding my sheep. And as it were, Peter is restored as, to service. He's, he's recalled to his responsibility. And then the Lord Jesus goes on to tell him how life will end for him by telling him, when you were young, you girded yourself, but, but when you're old... You'll stretch forth your hands and another will gird you and carry you whether you would whither you would not go. this he spoke, signifying his death and ultimately we understand that Peter did stretch forth his hands on a cross, died that way as we understand it record of church history, not that but with the confirmation of our Lord's words, I accept it more, but anyway, he was signified by what death he would glorify God. And then he gives this word, verse 19, follow me. What was the original call for the disciples? Follow me. And what they do, they left their nets and followed him. So Peter is recalled. But one more aspect to this. Peter looks over at John and says, what shall this man do? And Jesus in effect says, don't worry about John. If I want him to live till I come, so be it. You follow me. Once again, the call is reissued. Verse 19 and verse 22, follow thou me. Well, John records a little bit of something that wasn't true. People thought he would live till the Lord came back. He said, Jesus didn't say that. He said, if I will, then he does. So be it. But the the, the thought here... Is, is again for Peter. Peter, don't occupy yourself with one another. Occupy yourself with yourself. And you know, that's something we often have a problem with, isn't it? We're finishing. We haven't started. Don't worry. <laughs> um, it's easy for me to straighten out your Christian life, isn't it? Well, I could... <laughs> Don't talk too much right now, Terry. She's laughing too good on this one. It's easy for me to plow her field. But the Lord Jesus is telling Peter, you just looked after your own garden. Now, we ought to help one another grow, right? But I can't get the speck out of your eye till what? I get the log out of mine. And so in effect, the Lord Jesus is telling Peter... Peter, don't worry about John. Because Peter's question was, what what shall this man do? He's going to follow me too, but Peter, you remember, your call is to follow me. And that's where it begins, brothers and sisters. And uh, so we see this matter of restoration here. Uh, May the Lord help us to do that, each one of us to follow Him. Thank you Brother.